When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and they answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today it's kind of personal. We're talking about the apostolic ministry and uh, some of my thoughts about success as a church planter, which um, if you're not part of this church plant and you're listening, you're part of some other church or, or whatever uh, community you're part of or, or not part of, um, I hope that some of this resonates with you because um, our successes and our failures do get personal. And um, I think Paul has a really good perspective on how to handle failure and success. A reading from the Epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 4, the second letter to the Corinthians. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to the death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, the church remembers Blandina and her companions, the martyrs of Lyon. In the second century, after a brief respite, Christians in many parts of the Roman Empire once again subjected to persecution. At Lyon in Vienna, Vienne in Gaul, France, there were missionary centers which had drawn many Christians from Asia and Greece. They were living a devout life under the guidance of uh, Pathinus, Pathinus, the elderly bishop of Lyon. When persecution began in 177, that idea that there were Christians were always persecuted in the Roman world is, is not historically true. There were a lot of persecutions, and they varied in length and intensity. But um, And when they happened, they were horrific. Um, and this is one of them in 177. At first, the Christians were socially excluded from the Roman homes, the public baths, and the marketplace. Insults, stones, and blows were rained on them by pagan mobs, and Christian homes were vandalized. Soon after, the imperial officials forced Christians to come to the marketplace for harsh questioning, followed by imprisonment. Some enslaved people from Christian households were tortured to extract public accusations that Christians 
practice cannibalism, incest, and other perversions. This was the common theme of early Christianity from outsiders, people that hated Christians. The charge of cannibalism, that they ate people, um, mainly from the, the Eucharist theology and words that they pray. This is my body given for you, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Um, it shows that early Christians did believe that they were communing with the body and blood of Jesus when they took communion, um, that they practiced that and said that and believed that um, without a lot of questioning of that at that time. Um, it's only in the most recent era that Christians have abandoned that kind of belief to say, you know, you're just supposed to remember Jesus um, when you take communion, but he's not spiritually present in the bread and the wine. But these early Christians just did what Jesus told them to do. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, so cannibalism, incest. Uh, there were stories of Christians, uh, you know, putting like babies in loaves of bread and eating them and that sort of thing. Um, terror the, terror um, and evil always lies about the truth. Um, these same accusations of cannibalism in the medieval era, when Christianity was running the show, were used against Jews, that they were cannibals. They were eating Christian babies. Pretty much any group that eats other people's babies is going to be vilified, and people will riot in the streets about that. Um, and these early opponents of Christianity in the Roman world uh, knew how to get a crowd worked up. Incest, Christians called each other brother and sister as the primary form of identity and address, as do some churches today. Um, and so when they were married, or married couples would call each other brother or sister, um, Christians were accused of incest and other perversions. It, the list goes on and on. And people got worked up about this. The mobs would come out and pitch the pitch of wrath um, that any leniency toward imprisoned Christians was impossible. Even friendly pagans now turned against them. It's hard to stand up for a group that is eating babies. Um politically, or at least being accused of that. Obviously, justice and objectivity is not working here with the mobs. The fury of the mob fell most heavily on Sanctus, a deacon, Attalus, uh, Maturus, a recent convert, and Blandina, an enslaved woman. According to Eusebius, a church historian, Blandina was so filled with the power to withstand torments that her torturers gave up. I am a Christian, she said, and nothing vile is done among us. Sanctus was tormented with red-hot irons. The aged Pothinus, the bishop, was badly beaten. He died soon after. Finally, the governor decided to set aside several days for a public spectacle in the amphitheater. Eusebius depicts Blandina in particular as standing in the person of Christ. Blandina was suspended on a stake, and exposed to be devoured by the wild beasts who would attack her. And because she appeared as if hanging on a cross, and because of her earnest prayers, she inspired the combatants with great zeal. 
For they looked on her in her conflict and beheld with their outward eyes in the form of their sister, him who was crucified for them, that he might persuade those who believe in him that every one who suffers for the glory of Christ has fellowship always with the living God. Similar to what Paul is writing about in 2 Corinthians, here we see a woman, an enslaved woman, someone with no social status at all, is bearing the image of Christ here in this, in this torturous execution. Um, women in the church have always, always, from the earliest days, uh, witnessed to the power of Jesus. The idea that um, God is simply an old man in the sky or something, or that Jesus um, cannot um, include all uh, this woman in the earliest days of the church is, is depicting Jesus on the cross for those that watched her die. On the final day of the spectacle, writes Eusebius, Blandina, last of all, like a noble mother who had encouraged her children and sent them ahead victorious to the king, hastened to join them. Beaten, torn, burned with iron, she was wrapped in a net and tossed about by a wild bull. The spectators were amazed at her endurance. Eusebius concludes, they offered up to the father a single wreath, but it was woven of diverse colors and flowers of all kinds. It was fitting that the noble athletes should endure a varied conflict and win a great victory, that they might be entitled in the end to receive the crown supreme of life everlasting. Here we see early Christians uh, describing the suffering Christians who are suffering for Jesus as being athletes in the arena, that they are in their tortures, uh, enduring in such a way that defies human imagination and endurance. Um, Christians today, we don't seek out persecution. Uh, we don't want to be persecuted at all. And early Christians did not want to be persecuted at all either. Um, there is no um, blessing in wanting to be persecuted. But when it happens, um, Christians will do stuff like this. And the Blandinas of the world and of the church will rise up and be Jesus and embody Jesus and show us Jesus for all the ages to come. Almighty God, who gave such courage and endurance to Blandina and her companions, that by their deaths many hearts were turned to you, grant that we, in accordance with their example, may also gladly endure all that is required of us as we witness to you in our own day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray a colic for... Friday, Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. The letter of Second Corinthians that we read today, a bit of, on the fourth chapter, contains within it the challenge of the early apostles, the challenge of the whole idea of apostles. 
Um, even at this very early stage in the life of our church, there is a challenge of authority. Who is really in charge of this church? If Jesus were here, we could just say, well, there's Jesus. What do you think about this? Um, for some parts of the story of the Christian church, it was Jesus and his disciples, including a larger number than just the 11 or 12. At times, there's other people included in that number. And then there's the three that are the Peter, James, and John, the very close center of that. And then his mother Mary and Mary Magdalene and the other Marys who are also there in that circle. It's hard to know how all the um, structures of authority worked because there weren't that many people in it. The smaller the group, the less structure and and uh, it is needed or written instructions or those sorts of things. But here now in this age of the church, churches are everywhere. There's churches um, all over the place, the ecclesia, the gathering of believers. And Paul in his journeys, along with Barnabas and Silvanus or Silas and John Mark, and then Timothy and Titus and others and Luke have started these communities in all these different cities in the Roman world. Um, a lot of them are in the, the part of the Roman world that's Greek. And all the Roman world, and to some degree, is Greek, um, as they're using Greek to do business and ev- pretty much everything. Um, it's likely that most of the folks in this, these stories were very conversant in Greek. So they would have read this letter and understood it uh, in their own language when they got it, we can imagine. It's, very, it's written to this challenge of authority, though. Who are these apostles? And why, why should the apostles uh, be able to sort out what is really of the Spirit and what isn't? And how far does that authority extend? And in particular, Paul's authority as an apostle is being challenged more than anybody. He was not there in the years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was not there at the crucifixion not even really at the resurrection, um, according to any record. He is an apostle born out of due time, as he describes himself. Um, And yet the word apostle is the word for sent, someone who is sent. Um, This is not some ruling council uh, in some beautiful boardroom in some palace somewhere or temple. Um, The apostles are people who go out and start churches and communities all around the world. That is what an apostle is. And Paul is arguing that the hallmark of the apostolic ministry is suffering. That is what it means to be an apostle. Uh, that ultimately that is the determiner of, of uh, the authenticity of the apostle. And it's not just any suffering, but the suffering of Jesus the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced while he was here doing this very same thing. Jesus did the exact same thing that these apostles are doing, going from place to place, starting communities, inviting people into that community, and teaching them the truth of God's word. Paul makes it very clear 
that he refuses, and not just he, but we, the apostles, Paul's apostles that he's with, and all the apostles, have renounced and refused to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he is talking about here, um, but I, I think I know from my own experience some of the things that might be happening, and from the letters that he's written, um, he indicates that in the crisis of these churches in the early days is that many Christians who have come out of Judaism, they have been uh, righteous people of God, just as Jesus was and as Paul was, um, and in the in the old in the covenant of God that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai and God's people. And that transition from the church being primarily um, a synagogue-based Jewish uh, community subset of Judaism to um, a, a Gentile religion, a religion that uh, people that are Gentiles are starting to participate in in a bigger way and then become leaders. And that's sort of where the crisis happens in the early church. Um, these two groups of people that have kind of different values in life different understandings of how God works in the world. They're both kind of right um, in a lot of ways, but they're both uh, trying to meet their own needs. Um, Isn't that the way life is often? We have our needs that we try to get met in any way we can um, through all sorts of ways, through joining community organizations, through participating in things, and certainly church life is one of those things. But we need our needs met in these places. Um, and yet there are other people in these organizations and in this early church, there are people that come from very different backgrounds and have very different needs, um, for, and how, and ways of connecting to God. And so some of these more mature, they seem to be more mature Christians are doing what religious people like to do all the time. And that is laying heavy burdens on other people. I don't know. Um, I don't know um, how this works out in every area of life, but pretty much every religious organization I've ever been part of in different denominations and different places always had some people that felt like others weren't taking it seriously enough um, or weren't doing as much as they were doing. Um, And in order to fix this, the response is usually, Shame. Communities work with shame. Families use shame all the time to try to get everybody to behave. Um, We don't do that in our family. And churches do that too. We shame and um, try to get people to feel bad about things they're doing or thinking or feeling. Um, And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. Um, Laying heavy burdens on people, trying to get them to do things that God has not necessarily called them to. Um, For instance, in this early church setting, it is the keeping of the um, laws, dietary laws of the Old Testament is one of the things that early Christians tried to kind of do to each other. The other is to practice circumcision. It doesn't get more personal than that. When someone would have a baby, you can imagine in these early church settings, the the more experienced or older often by age and by experience in Christianity, uh, Christians 
who ha- had a Jewish background would couldn't really imagine um, a baby being born and not being circumcised. It was kind of hard to imagine for them. And Gentiles who had not been practicing circumcision for a long time, forever, um, would not have thought that would be the first thing you would do with a baby after eight days. Um, that's kind of a big deal. And you can imagine it causing tension. I mean, nothing causes more tension in a community than how we treat our children, how we raise our children. Nothing will mess with a community's common life than opinions about child rearing and child raising. Um, do you let your kids have a cell phone? Do you let your kids watch TV? You, what, what movies do you take them to? Um, how, where can they go on their own without supervision? I mean, just at these very basic level of questions of, of child raising, um, we have a wide diversity of opinion in every community that's on the planet. And so these concerns of dietary laws and circumcision, um, we're starting to um, make people question the authority of Paul. Because Paul is clearly on the side of the Gentile Christians here. He is saying that it is the weak Christians, even though they've got more experience and more time and grade, that are insisting that these babies get circumcised and even grown-ups get circumcised and keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament, um, that they are wrong about this to try to impose this stuff on new Christians, especially the Gentile converts to Christianity. And so um, he has to defend his apostleship over and over again, but he does it by saying, we are just speaking the truth and your conscience will know it. This is where Paul is um, in some ways a very modern thinker as opposed to maybe what we might consider back in the day where people were a little more willing to go along with strong leaders. He's saying your conscience has to approve this. Um, You should sift out the truth of God's word as the apostles, as he speaks it. And if, if, um, and if so, then, then go with it. Um, and the gospel is veiled. Not everyone's going to believe it. Not everyone's going to see it. Not everyone is going to agree with it. Um, but the apostles proclaim not themselves, but Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Um, here we see this theme of slavery again, this, this uh, metaphor for the apostolic ministry. Um, and I have to confess, in my, uh, we don't hold up the model of slavery as a great uh, model for church work um, today. We don't advertise that way. Come to seminary, get ordained, be a slave. Um, that would not really fly um, today. And yet that is the metaphor that Paul uses that it is not the apostle that is the one you're supposed to um, think is God. Ultimately, uh, Jesus is Lord. And as the apostle points to Jesus and teaches about Jesus and Jesus's light shines in them, then that works. But the apostle is not Jesus. What the apostle is, is a treasure in a jar of clay. Um, That the apostle's life is clay. Uh, That Paul's life is just a jar like any other jar. 
it's brittle, it's rough, it's, uh, but it does the job. It holds Jesus. That is the, the apostolic witness. Um, it is not, um, if you enjoy honey or jellies, I, I love fancy jellies. I'm sort of a fancy jelly person. I love getting those packets every Christmas, the Advent calendar, with different jelly every, every day for Advent. Um, I enjoy those kinds of things. But you know what? Um, the jars are really cute. The little jelly jars that I got this last Christmas for Advent, the Advent calendar. They're all small, you know, little jars. But the thing about those, the thing about those jams and jellies is the jams and jellies, not the jar. And that's true with everything that we enjoy. If you like uh, any beverage, it is the beverage that you're enjoying, not the, not the, um, not the jar, not the can. Even though we love nice bottles and cans, and um, that is one of the attractions and allures of of drinking alcohol is the beautiful bottles and beautiful cans and all those sorts of art that goes into that. Um, and yet this jar of clay that Paul is, is saying, I'm just a jar of clay, not even of glass, just of clay. Um, cause it is the thing inside it that matters. And that thing inside that jar of clay is a person. It is Jesus. And as the jar of clay is afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. The apostolic strength that the leaders of the church should carry is this very kind of strength. It is the strength of living in the death of Jesus so that any good thing that comes out of it is credited to Jesus. Um, one of the things in this building search that has been so discouraging for me is my own personal failures in um, being a better businessman. <laughs> I don't know how to say that in any other way. But um, I just always think if I could have swung more deals, been a little more savvy years ago when some opportunities were there for certain buildings and financial schemes and plans and, and pretty, pretty big risks, but um, my own failings as a businessman there uh, sometimes discourage me. Um, and I think oh, I could have done a better job back then. And now the challenges of the moment, I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, my inner monologue is going right now. But um, in, that, um, in that struggle, um, in that sort of feeling inadequate, uh, I have learned one thing about church planting. And that is that whenever there's a big success, whenever we have a big success, I mean, the most obvious success in church planting is having a lot of people come on a Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> that's just the way it is. And you guys are all um, stories of that success. But whenever that happens, it's usually in relation to other Sundays where not as many people came or other events that I sat there by myself and felt really sad. Um, and that's, that's, and so when there is success in church planting in the apostolic ministry that God has called all of us to, and Paul is feeling it too, um, there is this 
inability to take credit for it that I have felt in the last couple of years. That um, ultimately, when there is success, it is from God. Because the times where I felt like everything was a failure um, is also from God. That all of that is from God, both the success and failure. And I love that about church planting because it's the one thing in life that I feel like um, when there is a success, it is all God and not me at all. And very few other things in life are like that. Um, There's a lot of things we can kind of feel like maybe we can take credit for or blame ourselves for when they don't go right. But the thing about building the the community of Jesus, the the church that Jesus founded 2,000 years ago and planting it in this place, that's the thing that I love the most is that that simply being a treasure in an earthen vessel is enough. And so whenever we have success, um, I just feel so happy that it has nothing to do with me, that it has something to do with Jesus, who has worked through our weaknesses together and has worked through my weaknesses to bring about a miracle. And I'm not just talking about numbers success of people that show up on a Sunday morning, because that is not certainly what a church plant is ultimately here to do. The kind of successes that I'm talking about are times where where you all and other people in our community uh, learn things about God and learn things about themselves and learn how to live the way Jesus taught us to live. Um, Not not by having a heavy burden to carry, um, but but ultimately by experiencing the freedom um, that Jesus offers us in spite of the sufferings of this world, in spite of the setbacks that we have, that we are persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. Um, that is the motto for life in Christ. It is not um, not ever having any problems. It is simply having that pattern of death and resurrection in everything we do, that things die, we die, dreams die, plans die, all these things die, and yet everything comes back to life, everything. Not one thing that dies does not come back to life. And that is the miracle that we get to live into as the church. And I, I love that part about Paul's writings here, that he has experienced himself as he writes towards the end of his ministry, that Jesus will also raise us with himself. And that is our hope and our calling, and it's really awesome to be part of that today.